You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. just going to read the first five verses. Uh, this morning's message is largely going to be based on just part of a verse. Going to kind of zero in on something this morning. <coughs> Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. I trust everyone has found their place. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Heavenly Father, we do call on you and ask that, Father, you'd be pleased to Bless us this morning, Father, with eyes that can see and ears that can hear. That, Father, you would teach us these truths. I pray, Father, that you'd be pleased to communicate to each one of us, meeting, meeting us in the various places we find ourselves, and uh, encouraging us, oh, Father, uh, by instructing us in the truth and, and teaching us, oh, Father, what this really means and what it means to our lives here in the 21st century America. So, Father, we look to you uh, for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Um, We've been spending a lot of time in these passages, haven't we? And uh, trust me, we could spend a lot more time than we're going to. Uh, There's really a lot. Paul's writings are, are very dense, and there are a lot of things that can be gleaned from them. We really, in many respects, started a series within a series here uh, based on verses one and two. Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace. And a few weeks back, we studied the word peace. He says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, verse two, we have obtained access. And in the second message, we looked at the idea of access, that access is to God is obtained only through Christ Jesus, right? And we looked at that really in some respects through the lenses of how that's received by our culture today. It's, uh, it really is, uh, it, it appears on the face of things to be a, a somewhat arrogant claim that, that Christianity is the only true religion. When we look around and you, you see so many people practicing so many other types of religion and they are uh, so absolutely sincere in their endeavors. And uh, I think today that if we boiled all this down into uh, one word, we might find the word sincerity, that it's believed by our culture that you can be saved uh, through sincerity. Uh, you can find all kinds of different routes or different paths to God. Uh, God will accept that as long as you're sincere. I think that's what's believed by many folks. And... Um, The gospel says something quite different, doesn't it? 
Jesus is uh, the only entry point, the only access point uh, to God. And uh, this is not our idea, is it? Uh, This is simply the revelation that's been given to us. So we've looked at peace with God. It's only found in Christ Jesus. We look at access to God. That can only be had through Christ. He is the way, right? He is the way. And last week we began to look at joy. And really the word rejoicing, we find it in verse 2. Uh, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We find it in verse three. We rejoice in our sufferings. And last week we we spent some time looking at that, didn't we? The idea of rejoicing in suffering. How in the world could we rejoice in suffering? Is Paul calling us to love pain? Um, Is pain to be our friend? Not in that sense, no. You'll remember that the word rejoice is a joy that comes from confidence that God is with us, that he is working in our lives, that he is seeing us through to the end of this thing. We might think of a verse that I quoted in my pastoral prayer. Lo and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. There's a there's a verse that should give us joy when we're in the midst of suffering, when it hurts, when we're grieving, when we're, we're facing health issues, whatever that suffering might be, those words, lo and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There's some joy in that, isn't there? And that's the rejoicing or the boasting, if you like, that Paul is speaking about in verse 2 and in verse 3 and in verse 11. If you look down at verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's this confident boasting or this joy that comes from uh, from a confidence that God is with us, that he's working ultimately for our good, that he's taking us, that he's fulfilling all of his glorious promises uh, and et cetera and et cetera. Does that make sense? Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on the last part of verse two. And you'll notice if I read verse two in its entirety, we have the words Through him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, that phrase should be very familiar to us because there's a song that we sing where we have a refrain where we say those very words, don't we? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, A simple question. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? I mean, we sing it. We sing it sincerely. I mean, with sincerity, we we sing it. And I think we all have some idea of maybe what it means. But what exactly does it mean? And that's what we're going to focus on uh, this morning. Let's let's look at it. Let's let's analyze it. The first word we come to that we haven't looked at really in depth yet is the word hope. Uh, We have talked about hope. Uh, Hope comes up a lot. And I think if if we were to summarize verses one through 11 of Romans five with one single word, I think it would be hope because hope keeps coming up as we go through these verses. Uh, What is hope? Uh, Someone might think, well, you know, that's easy enough. I know what hope is. They use the word hope all the time. And uh we do use the word hope all the time. 
last uh, night we had a graveside service for a, a friend of ours, the Roberts family. And uh, all day yesterday, we were hoping that the rain would subside for that graveside service. Uh, as of about two o'clock yesterday afternoon, it didn't look like we had much hope for that. Uh, at our house, it was pouring down rain at that time. Uh, we were wondering if we weren't going to be out there uh, in the cemetery with uh, umbrellas, uh, which would have been fine. We've done that before. But my point is, we were hoping that the rain would subside. We use that word all the time like that, don't we? What it what are we saying? Well, we're saying it. We have this this desire or this wish that something would turn out the way we like it to turn out. Now, what is lacking in that, in this widespread use, if you will, this secular use of hope, what is lacking in that is certainty. Did I have any certainty that it was going to stop raining uh, for the graveside service last night? Not really. I mean, the weather reports seemed to indicate it was going to stop around five o'clock, but we know all about the weather reports, don't we? I mean, they have a level of accuracy, correct? I mean, in all fairness, but do we have certainty in a weather report? You know, it's a prediction. There's no certainty. Well, the biblical word hope is not like that. In fact, um, here is a one definition from a lexicon. It's from the Freiburg lexicon of this biblical word. Uh, we translate hope and it reads, quote, expectation of a divinely provided future. Expectation of a divinely provided future future let's think that through for a minute okay last night we hoped that it would quit raining okay that's nothing more than a wish or a desire that's what we like but this definition is an expectation of a future that is provided by God You see, it's, it's an expectation that is based upon a promise. Let me put it another way. It's an expectation that's based on a person. A person with a perfect track record. A person who cannot lie. A person whose promises always come to fruition. So you see, biblical hope is a hope with certainty. It's not a mere wish or desire. So when the Apostle Paul says, we hope, or we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, it's not wishing for a favorable weather report for an event that we happen to have scheduled on a particular evening or day. It's hope that's based in rest. It, it's based and rests in the promises and certainties of God. Now, if we're thinking this through, we might think to ourselves that, you know, this 
Hope kind of sounds like faith, doesn't it? Hope kind of sounds like faith. Well, that's because it's very difficult actually to distinguish, to make a sharp distinction between biblical hope and saving faith. Except for it's often said that, okay, saving faith looks to the promises of God, if you will. Saving faith may, in in this respect, look back. It'll look back to the prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. It'll look back to the work of Christ on the cross. It'll look back to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, to the ascension. It'll look back to all of these things. Faith looks to these things. But hope is actually faith looking forward to what we cannot yet see. And if you, if you just turn in your Bibles, just probably just one page or two to Romans 8.24, we see a little bit of that. Romans 8 and verse 24, Paul says, um, he says, uh, for, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So you see, there's this forward-looking aspect to hope. Uh, our, our hope is set upon that which we cannot see. There are many promises that are yet to be fulfilled completely, right? We're not in our resurrection bodies yet, are we? Uh, we hope for our resurrection bodies. Um, we are uh, yet to be glorified, correct? Uh, repentance is a daily thing for us. We hope for the day when uh, repentance will be no more. Because we will sin no more. So we hope for those things. We can't see those things yet. But hope is faith looking forward uh, to these things. So that takes us to hope. Now, the the next word in our phrase, back to uh, Romans 5 and the end of verse 2, Paul says, we hope in the glory of God. Now, this one's a little more difficult. Uh, The word glory. Uh, If you were handed a blank sheet of paper and you you were given the the assignment of writing, okay, explain to me uh, what is glory? What is the glory of God? Well, that's a little bit difficult, isn't it? Uh, it's a little bit difficult. And uh, as I've been thinking all week, okay, how are we going to do this? Well, uh, that was the reason for our reading in Psalm uh, 19. You don't need to turn there. You read it just a few moments ago. But in Psalm 19, uh, the, the psalmist David, he says, the heavens declare uh, the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. So we're thinking, OK, what is the glory? Well, you know, we can look out and we can see sometimes we see a blue sky. There's a little bit of a blue sky there. We live near Pittsburgh, so they're not that often seen, but they are seen from occasion. But the psalmist is looking up at the uh, at the universe, he's looking up at the, the, the firmament, if you want to use the old King James word, the sky, uh, the heavens, the, the, the body of stars, what have you. And he, he's looking at the creative genius of God. And he's saying, look, uh, these are preachers. They preach the glory of God. Last night, uh, a really good friend of mine with his sister, I had a wonderful conversation with her last night. And we were talking about the human body and how the human body is just amazing, how it repairs itself, how it functions, how it does all these things. And, and, it, and that led us to talking about the architect of the human body. We began to talk about God and just glorifying God for creating such a marvelous thing as our bodies. Uh, 
In that respect, our, our, our bodies become preachers and they preach the glory of God. That's, that's what David is saying here. The heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, the heavens become uh, preachers of his handiwork, if you will. Uh, you don't need to turn here either. Isaiah 6 and verse 3 is another verse where we, uh, where we see this again. Um, and the context of this, as some of you are well aware, Isaiah has a vision. And I, in fact, this is his commission, if you will, as God's prophet. And he has this vision where he sees the Lord uh, seated upon a throne in his temple. And then he sees these mighty angels, these seraphim, uh, each, they're six-winged creatures, two wings they're covering their face with, two wings they're covering their feet with, two wings they're flying, and they're proclaiming these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then the next line, which is a, which is a parallelism, they say the whole earth is full of, and what I think we would expect them to say, is the whole earth is full of his holiness. But that's not what it says in the second line. It says the whole earth is full of his glory. Of his glory. And we can conclude from this that part of God's glory is his absolute holiness. The holiness that that led him to design these creatures with these uh, four additional wings. They have six wings. With two of them, they flew. But with the other four, what did they do? They covered their eyes before the, before the Lord. And they covered their feet. Why would they cover their feet? Because the feet are symbolic. They're symbolic of their creatureliness. They covered them. Before the presence of God, before the presence. It's, 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 it's an imagery of God's absolute holiness. How do, you con, how do you communicate holiness? That's another difficult task, isn't it? But there's another passage that, uh, where this, I think this idea of God's glory becomes more acute. And I do invite you to turn to Exodus 33. And while you're turning there, page 73, if you're using the church's Bible, while you're turning there, the, the context is, Moses is up on, uh, up on Mount Sinai and he's receiving instruction from the Lord. He's been up there for a period of time. And meanwhile, uh, Israel has fashioned a golden calf and they've begun to worship this golden calf. And uh, Moses' meeting is cut short by this apostasy that's taking place down in the camp. And uh, really, we have tremendous, in, in, in chapter 32 and chapter 33, we have some tremendous lessons in leadership and some tremendous lessons in in prayer and i'm going to try to discipline myself not to go into any of those here uh, because we, we will study those on another day that's a sermon for another day i don't want to dump you a bunch of stuff on you uh, but long story short uh, god is is uh, is very upset with the idolatry that's taking place and moses pleads on behalf of Israel. Uh, he intercedes for Israel. He pleads on behalf of Israel. And God hears his intercession. And in chapter 33, verse 2, the Lord says to Moses, verse 1, chapter 33, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I'll give it. 
And notice verse two. It's easy to miss this. God says, I'll send an angel before you and I will drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. You know, the Canaanites, the, the Hittites, the Perizzites, etc. Um, God is not going to go personally. He's sending an angel. Uh, it's important that we that we catch that. Uh, he says in verse three, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for your stiff necked people. And of course, the people, verse four, they hear this, they begin to mourn. And um, there's a lot of uh, mourning and sorrow in the camp. Now, if you skip down to verse 12, uh, Moses says to the Lord, see you, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. See the wonderful lessons. You can already see the lessons in leadership here, can't you? And the lessons in prayer that are here. Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not, uh, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses says in verse 18, what? What does Moses say? Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Verse 19. God said, okay, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God does this. Um, verse five of chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse six. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, we're not going to go into really a, a full orbed explanation of every aspect of these verses because our text this morning is Romans 5. Uh, but a couple of observations here that I think are very interesting and pertinent to our discussion. One is Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory. Show me your glory. So I think what we're expecting when, 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 when God says, okay, I think what we're expecting is some kind of visual description, aren't we? Wouldn't you expect like a visual description, kind of like what, what uh, the Apostle John does in, Rome, in Revelation chapter 1, where he gives this physical description of Christ that he sees in his vision? You know, uh, 
We're kind of expecting this visual description, but that's not what we get, is it? We get something entirely different. Um, and I, 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 I think, I, I know that what we get is far better than a visual description. I think we'd like to have a visual description. But how, how would the visual description, how would it benefit us if we thought about it? Well, you know, what, what would Moses use to describe what he saw? He would have to use some aspect of creation, which would be inadequate to truly show what he saw. Well, it was like these, you know, it was like these, these precious stones and there'd be a bunch of stones we'd never heard of and we'd wonder what those were about or what they looked like or it'd be like, it'd be like this or it'd be like that or it'd be like this and we'd be sitting around trying to think, okay, what did he see? What did it look like? What did it look like? And that, I'm not saying that that wouldn't be useful. I'm not saying that that wouldn't be helpful, but I am saying it wouldn't be nearly as helpful as what God gives us. What does God give us? Notice in verse six, the Lord passes before him and proclaims what? He opens up a window, if you will, to his very heart. And he shows us his heart. This is my heart. The Lord, the Lord, he says in verse six. There's emphasis there. Why? Why repeat? Well, when you see this repetition in Hebrew writings, it's meant for emphasis. You also notice he's using the covenant name, uh, capital L-O-R-D, all capitalized. It's the covenant name. It's the name that God gives at the burning bush where he says, I am who I am. I am the self-existing one. I am the giver of all life. I'm the sustainer of all things. He requires nothing from anyone. He is completely self-sustaining. It's hard to get our minds wrapped around that. As a little kid, I can remember praying to God. And I remember praying to him many, many occasions saying, Lord, who created you? How did you get here? It's difficult for us, even as adults, to try to conceive there not being a starting point. There is no starting point. God is the, the, the first cause of all things, if you will, if you want to use some of the philosophical language here. He says, the Lord, the Lord it is a covenant name. It's a covenant name. That's also important because because God has made covenant promises, hasn't he? He's made promises. So he's giving us his covenant name, a Lord or I'm sorry, the Lord, the Lord, a God. And the next part says merciful and gracious. Some of your translations may say compassionate and gracious. Uh, this word merciful could be translated compassionate. Uh, God is compassionate. Uh, he, he is merciful. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows that we are but dust. He also knows that we are fallen dust. He understands our weaknesses. He understands, uh, he understands us in every way. And he can meet us with his compassion. He is merciful. He is gracious. God has never once dealt with us as our sins deserve. He always deals with us in a way that we do not deserve. And that can be, you know, the statement I just made to someone who's really had a rough ride in life can actually be offensive. I certainly don't mean it to be. Because someone can say, well, it's easy for you to say you haven't had the life I've had. If you've had the life I've had, you say, well, I got it. You wouldn't be speaking like that. Well, I, you know, to that I say, well, I haven't had the life that some folks have had. That is true. But I would still be speaking this way because that's what the book says. The book says that we have never been dealt with 
in a way that our sins deserve. And I know that's a hard comment for many people. And I understand why. Uh, But we have such a little understanding of who we are and of what we are before God's perfection that it makes it really hard for us to receive that, doesn't it? You know, we think we we live in a time where the word deserve is 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 said constantly. We deserve this and we deserve that and we deserve this. And we you hear the word deserve all day long. If we got what we deserved, we'd be destroyed immediately. Um, Immediately. God is gracious. He's gracious to us all. We're told that he is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. Uh, In other words, he's patient. Uh, It's hard, you know, he's not like we are. We are not patient, especially with other people. On the way here, uh, Tammy and I, Tammy and Kylie and I, we're we're coming down off the off ramp here and we get to the red light and the the light's green, but we couldn't go through because there's a car sitting in the middle of the intersection. And um, actually, it was so absurd that Kylie started laughing and she's like, Pappy, what's up with that car? I thought it was broke down at first until I saw the driver intensely staring at the light and then. Uh, then our, our light went red and then I could see their light going green and off they went. And I'm like, well, uh, you're supposed to, you're, you're not supposed to stop in the intersection. You know, the point of the light is to let other guys go, you know, but whatever they, uh, I, I don't know what to say to that, but Tammy and I busted out laughing because Kylie was laughing. It really was a funny sight, but these kinds of things can infuriate us from time to time, can't they? We're not patient with people, are we? Even though we do some of the same stupid things we see other people doing. Have you ever been out somewhere kind of lost and you're kind of driving? You know you're driving like a goof. And here you are driving like a goof and you can't figure out where you're going and you're holding everybody up. And it's then we want everyone to be patient with us. (laughs) Until we're back home. And someone else is being the goof. No patience. No patience for the goof. God is not like that. He's not like that. He has patience with the goofs. And thank goodness he has patience with the goofs because we are a bunch of goofs who do a lot of goofy things. And all kidding aside, we are sinful, aren't we? I mean, we do things that are highly offensive to God on a routine and regular basis. And I don't say it to glory in it, and I don't say it to lighten it in any way. It shouldn't be light. You know, every time I say this, I run the risk of making light of it. We shouldn't be making light of it. I'm not making light of it. I'm just merely saying God is patient. Let us never presume on his patience. Don't presume on his patience. Ah, you know, we can live fast and loose and careless and sin because God is patient. Oh, my goodness. Don't take that road. If you're thinking along that that line, please. Oh, my goodness. um, Don't go down that path. Um, Presuming on his kindness is a it's 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 a it's a highway to to quick destruction. But God is patient. He is long suffering. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. What does that mean? Abounding. I think we know what abounding means. There's lots of it. The steadfast love is he puts his love upon his people. He sets his love upon his people. And unlike us, he keeps it there. You know, many marriages break apart and you, you sit down and you talk with people about the marriage breaking apart and, and, and she or he will say, I just don't love them no more. I just don't love him anymore. Or I just don't love her anymore. God's not like that. 
He sets his love upon us. This is an important lesson for us, by the way, because especially when we've blown it, I mean, we start to think God's like us and we think we think he's going to be feeling like we are and we don't love ourselves for what we have done. And we come to the conclusion, how could he possibly love us for what we've done? But here's the verse. Here's where you go. He sees again, we don't presume upon this. But he's abounding. He doesn't have just a little bit of steadfast love. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's abounding in it. He's got it. He's got it without measure, if you will. He's abounding in the steadfast love. When he sets his love upon us, it's there for eternity. He doesn't love you any more today than he will in eternity. Isn't that an amazing thing? And we're pretty unlovely, aren't we? Someone might say, well, you speak for yourself, right? Thank you very much. I'm happy to do that. I am quite unlovely. And you can ask Tammy anytime you want about that. <laughs> steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. Look at this, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. I'd love to go into those three, those three terms, iniquity, transgression, and sin. But we're going to save that for another day. But here we see God is forgiving. We see he is willing to forgive. When we repent... He calls us to repent. Jesus says the kingdom of God is upon you. Now repent and believe in the gospel. He's calling us to repent. He delights in our repentance because he is ready to forgive. He is ready to forgive us as we repent. And that is the greatest of news, isn't it? He's ready to forgive us as we uh, as we repent. If you have any sin, you've not repented to him. Look at this verse. He keeps steadfast love. He sets his love upon his people. It never goes anywhere. And he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Think of the context of this. What has Israel been doing? They've been, they made this, this, they just got delivered out of Egypt with all those marvelous miracles and what have you. It's only been approximately seven weeks since they've been delivered from Egypt. And here they are fashioning a golden calf and falling down before it. So this, idea that God is forgiving would have been a glorious melody to the ears, wouldn't it? Especially when you, you see, when you turn back to chapter 33 and you look at verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word that the Lord was going to send an angel instead of going with them, uh, going with them himself, uh, they, they, they mourned. Here they are mourning. Now can you imagine hearing this, that the Lord is merciful and kind, he's willing to He's willing to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so we don't get the wrong idea. He never does this in a way that compromises his justice. That's so very important, you see. That's the genius of the gospel, is God can be forgiving without compromising his justice. That's the whole point of the cross. His justice requires punishment for sin. He, just, he, he forgives iniquity, so he has to find some kind of recourse to punish the sin because God is just. Nobody's getting away with anything, you see. All of this serves to reveal God's glory. Now there's one more step we need to take. And we'll start to wrap this all up. We start out looking at the, at the heavens they're preachers that proclaim the glory of God. We went to Isaiah and we saw the, the preachers, those mighty seraphim, proclaiming the glory of God. We went to Moses, asking God to show him his glory. And we get these verses in 34, verses 6 and 7. We see all these aspects where God basically opens up his heart. There's one more step, one very important step. And what is that step? 
It's when God steps into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. The incarnation itself reveals the glory of God, doesn't it? And juxtapose for a moment Christ in the Gospels with what we're reading in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. When Jesus comes and he goes through Palestine with his ministry, is he not merciful and gracious everywhere? He actually gives a body. He actually he, he enables us to see all of this. If you read the Gospels and you see what is Jesus doing, he's running up and down Palestine, being merciful and gracious, being slow to anger. He's he 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 literally is um, abounding in steadfast love. I mean, we see that in the most clear sense, don't we? He sets his eyes on Jerusalem, realizing what are they going to do to him when he gets to Jerusalem? He knows what they're going to do to him when he gets to Jerusalem. The Gospel of John says it this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father. Glory revealed in Christ Jesus. And when Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. You know in the very context where Jesus says. You know let your hearts be troubled. In my father's house are many rooms. If we're not so I would have told you. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you so that you can be where I am. And Philip says to Jesus, we said, well, you know, um, show us the father. He says, let me read that verse for you, because it's so important. In uh, John 14, you, you can turn there if you like. Um, in John 14, I, I want you to see a connection here. I didn't see it until this week in preparation for this sermon. And I'm so happy that the Lord has showed it to me. I never put this together, but I think we're on good standing to put it together. John 14, where Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, what I have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Look at the grace and the compassion and the long suffering and everything that's in this. Uh, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now notice in verse eight, Philip asks a question. What does Philip say? He says, Lord, show us the father. And here's the connection. I think we I think we're justified in making it's a it's a connection that that I've never made until earlier this week. It to me sounds like Moses saying. Show me your glory. Doesn't it? And how does Jesus respond? It'll oh my goodness. How does Jesus respond? Jesus said to him, I've been with you so long. And you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the glory. You have seen the Father. So we want to see the glory. Well, we see a person. What a marvelous God we have that would do all of this for us. So with all of this, let's go back to Romans 5.2. Romans 5.2. 
we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let me give you three pegs, three pegs that you can write down and say, okay, that's what, this is what that phrase means. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about, remember, hope is faith looking forward to something we haven't realized yet. And Paul is saying, listen, we rejoice in this, that one of these days, God is going to open the curtain. And when he opens the curtain, we are going to see God and we are going to live. God tells Moses, no one may see my face and live. But here's the hope for us, that he is going to open the curtain and we are going to see him as he is in all his glory and all his splendor and all his attributes. And we are going to dwell in the sight of him for all eternity. That's the first thing. The curtain is going to be is going to be lifted. The second is we're going to be transformed. Go back to first John three, two, which we read earlier in our service. First John three, chapters two to three, there. page 1022. Because we see both of the things I've just said, we see in verse two of chapter three, first John chapter three, verse two. John says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, you see, there's certainty. There's hope, a certainty, hope with a certainty in it of something that has not yet happened. But there's certainty that it will. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The curtain's going to be lifted. And secondly, what we learn from here is we're going to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Why? Because we're going to, the curtain's going to be lifted and we're going to see him. We're going to be able to see him. We're going to be fitted to be able to see him and, and, and bask in his glory for all eternity. But secondly, we are going to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We're going to be as he is. Right? And thirdly, especially for those of you who love nature and love animals, as I love animals, all creation, we'll study this when we get to Romans 8, but for now, let me just say, all creation groans over the decay. You drive up and down the road, you see these animals that are dead along the road. That's not going to be the way things will be. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because part of rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God is not only going to be the transformation of ourselves, it's going to be the transformation of the earth the transformation of the new, the new heavens and the new earth. And that's all subject for another day. I don't want to get into a whole lot of that. This is glorious stuff, is it not? There's room for rejoicing, isn't there? Let us bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this glorious phrase. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And Father, now help us, help us, Father, to grow in our understanding of this, uh, to grow in our understanding of this hope that is set before us. And it's not yet realized, but we know with certainty it will be realized because your track record is perfect. You cannot lie. You keep your promises. We, we see that as part of your glory. And we hope in this revelation of your glory that we will see your glory. We will see you as you are that we will be transformed into the likeness of Christ and that uh, all of creation will be transformed also into the glory that you have 
uh, that you have conceived for it from eternity past. So, Father, we look to you, O Lord, and we look to you, O Lord, with hearts that are that are rejoicing and boasting in confidence that you are going to see all of these things to fruition. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.